Hey everybody, Magnus here. Big changes are coming for this episode. I've decided to eliminate a particular feature that I've done a few times in the past in favor of talking about something that's a little more interesting. At least to me. What is it, you may ask? Well, you just have to listen and find out. Or read the title of this episode, if you want to cheat. But you're not cheaters, are you? Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Ah! Dr. Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows up in here, up in here. Big doings this week, people. You see, I've decided to mothball the Star Wars Weekend podcast. Yep. So, today's the beginning of a new feature that I intend to do. Basically, I decided to finish up what I committed to as far as Star Wars is concerned, but after that, replace the Star Wars feature with something else. And what is that something else? Well, you'll just have to wait and listen. Now, you might ask why I'm doing this. Why must it be so? Well, honestly, for as much as I love Star Wars, I don't have as much to say about it as I first thought. I mean, really... I mostly like the Unaltered Trilogy, and the minute you get too far away from that, which the Expanded Universe kinda sorta has to do, the minute you get too far away from that, I start losing interest. Very bluntly, I could give two fucks about Han and Leia Solo's children, Luke and his ongoing efforts to rebuild the Jedi Order, Spayardi cloning cylinders. Mandalorians, the return of the Sith, the new return of the Sith, the latest return of the Sith, no bullshit, we're not kidding this time, the real return of the Sith, or or whatever else. I mean, yeah, Star Wars Legacy is a good comic, and, and hell, I'll probably even talk about it at some point, but by and large, the EU just isn't for me. So I found a different subject for one of my weekend podcasts. So, what's it going to be? What do I intend to replace the Star Wars episodes with? Smallville, of course. I loves me some Smallville. And I think the very first episode of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality pretty much established me among the royal elite of Smallville apologists as I spent something like an hour 
something like that, speaking up in Smallville's defense. And believe it or not, that's one of my most popular shows, at least as far as downloads are concerned. So the way I look at it, either a shitload of people out there love Smallville, or else a shitload of people out there want to listen to me defend Smallville. Either or, people. Either or. That, combined with the fact that I mothballed my Star Wars comics episodes, meant something had to fill the void. So, why not talk about Smallville? Because, when you think about it, all I really did in my first show was defend Smallville against a bunch of common gripes and complaints made by people with what I think is very little familiarity with Superman outside of TV and God knows film media. But... In so doing, I didn't really offer up as much analysis as I could have. So, why not do so now? And so it is that I replaced my Star Wars segments with these eight-episode retrospectives, where I look back at Smallville on a season-by-season basis. Now, the plan here is, I intend it, to tie subsequent developments in later seasons back to what's come before as I go along. So... If you're worried about the connective tissue of the show being lost, don't. I've got you covered, baby. Now, the original idea I had was to record a commentary for each episode of the series. But let's cut the bullshit. Even I don't have that kind of patience. Besides, the only way I could make it through the dreaded season four again is with liberal amounts of alcohol. And who wants to listen to someone half-sloshed attempt a commentary? Not I, my faithful subjects. Anyway. So that's the plan. And that's what I'll start doing. After these messages, I'll pick everything back up by talking about Smallville Season 1, Episode 1, Pilot. Enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Illogic, foolish emotions, a constant irritant, and freak. Two on the circus, <laughs> right next to the dog-faced boy. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Oh, shit. It's a super prize package worth $9,388. Money. This isn't the biggest bag over the head. Punch in the face I ever got. God damn it! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, your hosts, Scott Gardner. He killed a police officer for Christ's sake. Thank God, damn lucky he didn't kill him. And Chris Honeywell. Keep away! Keep away from me! 
you are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid, you have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Looking at me? Yeah, because she thought you're some kind of freak. Now come on, let's go. She likes me, eh? No way. Shut up, you freak! Julian Shoe. I say shut up! It's a man! A man! I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice. Blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? This is Erica Durant. You're listening to Magnus talk about small boat. Okay, I'm back now. And this is the real beginning of my Smallville retrospectives, where I go season by season through the show and basically follow and analyze all the character arcs and the plots and all that fun stuff. So, as it happens, I'd always intended to do more of a nuanced look at Smallville. I just wanted to knock out a defense thereof a little bit early on, and as it happens, that seems to have set the tone for my show. You see... Early on, I defended Smallville and the Schumacher Batman films, and I i guess I seriously underestimated the amount of goodwill that had won me, uh, because I'm always surprised when people say that's the stuff they that like really stands out for them, as far as my early shows are concerned. But in defending what fanboy dogma says is crap, I got a lot of attention. I'm not sure if anybody changed his mind because of all that stuff, but it got a lot of attention. On top of all that stuff, though, not very long later, I picked on Superman 2. Now, I like Superman 2, but whether it's the Donner cut or the canonical version, the Lester cut, I think it's a very flawed movie on the conceptual level. And it doesn't matter to me who gets credit for directing the movie, because... I've got serious problems with the core premise of Superman 2 to begin with. And again, fanboy dogma says Superman 2 is gold. So that also got a lot of attention for this show because I was willing to speak out against something that apparently a lot of people never invested much thought into. Again, triple underline this part. I like Superman 2. It's a sentimental favorite of mine. But... 
I refuse to sign my name to this notion that Donner Superman is perfect. I've never believed that, and I never will. So my point in all of this is to say that you shouldn't think of me as going back to the well on this or something. You know, in, in my first episode, I made what I think was a it was a reasonably well done defense of Smallville, but I didn't do a whole lot of analysis except where it related to the arguments that I was making. What I'm doing right now is intended to be analysis from beginning to end. And in case it hasn't been made clear yet, I love Smallville. These days, I actually regard it as my favorite incarnation of Superman outside the comics. And the reason for that is because Smallville is basically Superboy without the costume or the name Superboy. Now, I love Superboy as a concept. And by that, I mean the adventures of Superman as a boy. I've always... I've always had a fondness for the adventures that there are to be had in the town of Smallville. But as I've said before though, you have to justify Superboy's existence somehow. Superboy has to be different from Superman in some way or another, and not just a different setting or a different supporting cast. The character has to be different. So the problem, at least as I see it, is Superman to me is the epitome of virtue and heroism. So, if you make Superboy too different from Superman, you take the risk of tarnishing that purity and virtue and heroism. And maybe it's just me, maybe it's just where I'm at right now with my views of society, but I think we've had just about enough iconoclasm about our heroes in recent decades. If you ask me, we need something to represent the pure and the clean and the true. Superman's a hero. And anything you do to undermine that by giving him stupid hang-ups, flaws, bad habits, darkness, or the fuck ever else, those things don't work to serve Superman. They just undermine everything he's supposed to represent. So making Superboy interesting without simultaneously royally butt-fucking Superman as a character is a kind of tricky situation. But, intentionally or not, the creators of Smallville stumbled upon the perfect fucking solution. And basically, they decided mix and match. You go with the Burn Age approach of there never being a Superboy, but <clears throat> mix it with the pre-crisis approach of Clark having adventures as a teenager, battling supervillains, and all that stuff. In fact, there are a lot of influences on the depiction of Clark throughout the entire series of Smallville, but in the first several episodes in particular. This depiction of Clark isn't drawn directly from any single era of comics. There are several things at play here. First, obviously there's no super Superman uniform. So, also, obviously, there's a John Byrne Man of Steel influence here. This isn't really Superboy in the usual sense. That's the Burn Age influence coming out. At the same time, though, this Clark obviously exists in a little bit of a Silver Age milieu. Sure, he doesn't have a secret identity as Superboy, but he still has to contend with superpowered adversaries. The fact that he does so as a teenager is representative to me of the Silver Age. 
But in the middle of all this, Clark has a fairly limited range of powers compared to Superman in order to fight all of these superpowered freaks. In the first few episodes of season one, Clark has super strength, super speed, and the ability to leap a hell of a long way. Sounds like the golden age to me. So basically you have a John Byrne style Clark Kent, who isn't Superboy, living in a kind of Silver Age world of supervillains and, and superpowered uh, adversaries and all that fun stuff, mixed with Clark having, this teenage Clark having the Golden Age Superman's range of powers. So as I say, there's no single era of comics that you can draw straight lines back to because there are so many influences here that it, it just doesn't work, but at the same time, it all resonates because it feels authentic. So you can't say that this is super, that this is Clark Kent or Superman or whatever else from any particular comic book era because it pulls from all comic book eras. The basic the, this basic methodology is what the show would abide by for the majority of, uh, of its run. And this approach gives you the opportunity to basically do Superboy in a way where he can be different from Superman. He can be flawed, he can make mistakes, he can say the wrong thing at the wrong time and basically just be a, a bratty teenager. But all of this without running the risk of ruining what Superman stands for. See, I'm not gonna go so far as to say that the Superman emblem is an almost religious uh, value to me. But at the same time, I have a tremendous respect for the, the S emblem, the Superman symbol, and everything that it represents. I oppose anything that makes Superman look like anything other than pure, virtuous, moral perfection. And that's why Clark, Clark couldn't fly. That's why he couldn't wear the uniform. That's why he couldn't call himself Superman. He couldn't do any of those things in this show until he was truly ready. Superman is a state of mind, a state of moral and psychological perfection that Clark has to reach in the course of the show. And season one intentionally begins with Clark nowhere near that goal. He has a lot of growing up to do and a lot of lessons to learn. The pilot episode of the show has a very poignant line in it. Clark laments to his parents that he just wants to make it through high school without being a total loser. Clark had attempted to get Jonathan to sign a permission slip so he could try out for the football team and Jonathan had quite understandably shot him down. Clark viewed joining the football team as enfranchisement in his high school's cast-oriented system. I mean, every high school has a hierarchy at work Certain people are virtual celebrities because they excel at certain things or they just look a certain way. Other people might become complete fucking social pariahs because they don't fit in or they don't look a certain way. Smallville High School's no exception to that. And Clark's a realist. He knows what the stakes are. And right or wrong, he views his best shot at escaping his fate as a complete loser to be joining up with the football team. And people, let's not kid ourselves. Clark wants to do it specifically so he can become a high school football superstar. He can see how the rest of the town uh, treats Whitney Fordman, and to some degree how they still treat Jonathan Kent. All Clark wants is a piece of that for himself. Now, this is all pretty foreign to Superman, isn't it? 
But these are the kinds of things that occupy a teenager's attention. At the same time, you don't think of these things as something that Superman would even consider. Clark's thoughts dwell on being unable to join the football team rather than saving the world. So, all of this is to say, Clark definitely has his work cut out for him if he's ever going to be ready to put on that Superman cape. Still, the pilot does begin Clark's journey. Clark's first known superhero-style rescue comes when Lex Luthor crashes his Porsche off the bridge. He hits Clark in the process, and they both tumble down into the river below. And from there, it's all pretty straightforward. Clark swims to the wrecked car, tears it open, fishes Lex, uh, Lex out of it, hauls him back to the surface, administers CPR, and saves Lex's life. That encounter would put Clark on the path to becoming a hero. This is where Clark's journey to becoming Superman truly begins. This rescue, though, would also put Lex on the path to becoming a villain. Not only that, it'd be Clark. It'd put Clark irretrievably on Lex's radar. I mean, Lex isn't stupid. He knows damn good and well there's more to the story than Clark's telling. This isn't over, not by a long shot. There are other complications going on in the pilot, though. Jonathan admits to Clark that he comes from outer space. They don't know anything else besides that. Now, Clark knew he was adopted. That much wasn't a mystery, but the idea that Jonathan and Martha pulled him out of some kind of fucking spaceship came as a major punch in the balls. As a matter of fact, <clears throat> my argument is that the remainder of this series is about Clark coming to grips with all of that, with his conversation with Jonathan, with everything that means. And in his defense, that's a pretty fucking big matzo ball that Jonathan rolled out there. As if all that wasn't enough, though, Clark has to face off with a supervillain. Jeremy Creek develops electric powers as a result of the meteor shower that brought Clark to Earth. After waking up from a coma that he'd been in all those years, Jeremy goes on a killing spree against the people who strung him up in the field to begin with. Now, Clark shuts Jeremy down before his friends and even his enemies can be electrocuted. And this is another big deal for Clark. He's probably accustomed to using his powers to do chores on the farm and things like that, but there's a big difference between that and using his superpowers to perform rescues and to fight supervillains. The rest of the series helps put Clark's early battles, especially the one with Jeremy Creek, put all of that shit into better context. By season 10, Clark's able to pretty effortlessly deal with superpowered foes. If Clark can't reason with somebody, he knocks him in the middle of next Tuesday. He knows exactly how much force to use with all of his punches. He knows how to efficiently deal with supervillains and shit, he even knows how to perform rescues without even being seen. All of these things, though, are skills Clark simply doesn't have when he goes up against Jeremy Creek. As a result, the Clark versus Jeremy battle is awkward and clumsy because Clark doesn't want to risk seriously hurting or, God help him, killing Jeremy. Because of that, the battle's longer than it really should have been and results in a, a, a greater amount of property damage than would have been necessary had an adult Superman handled Jeremy rather than an inexperienced teenage Clark. 
Clark isn't the only one who has to go through a learning curve, though. Jonathan and Martha have a fair amount of adjusting to do themselves, and we see a glimpse of that in the pilot when Clark shoves his arm through a wood chipper to prove his invulnerability to Jonathan. Now guys, this caught Jonathan completely off fucking guard, alright? He obviously knew his son possessed super speed and super strength, but the idea of being impervious to all physical harm seems to be a new item on the menu for Jonathan. And it seems obvious that Clark didn't even realize himself that he was virtually indestructible until about the time Lex's Porsche rammed into him at 60 miles an hour. Clark, still being just a little bit of a bratty teenager, gave Jonathan the same rude awakening that he'd gotten himself. And when Jonathan discovers that Clark's been floating around earlier in the morning in, in Metamorphosis, the second episode of season one, his reaction was pretty subdued. But think about it. It had only been the day before that Clark discovered that he couldn't be physically harmed, and then he showed that to Jonathan. Under the circumstances, I'd say Clark caught Jonathan on a good day. Floating? Let's face it, that's not the weirdest thing Jonathan's heard about Clark doing lately. Martha doesn't have that same benefit. She doesn't handle things quite as well as Jonathan did. When Greg Arkin attacks Whitney's Fo Whitney Fordman's truck and makes it explode, Clark rushes into action to save Whitney. Clark barely arrives in time to shield Whitney from the explosion, and Martha wastes no time in losing her shit over it and virtually going into hysterics. She's shocked and amazed to discover that Clark and Whitney survived the ordeal. Now, it's one thing to think that Martha had been told about Clark's growing power. Maybe she had been, but maybe not. But either way, it's another thing entirely when she's forced to witness it for herself. Martha Kent, for all that she is and isn't, obviously doesn't have the same temperament as Jonathan when it comes to dealing with Clark and his weird bullshit, because once she, uh, she's certain that everybody's okay... What does she do? She buries herself and work around the farm. Now, Martha loves her son, and she's proud of him. But at the same time, she needs time to get her head around all of this weirdness. Clark's eventual showdown with Greg Arkin is nearly as, a, as inept as the one with Jeremy Creek. Nearly. But not quite. Clark's slowly learning to refine his battle tactics. In the middle of the fight, Clark's exposed to kryptonite, and that was a wild card. He hadn't been expecting that. He was caught off guard, and so he uses the element of surprise to get the drop on Greg rather than rely on more brute force. Again, Greg Arkin is Superman's coffee break, but it's still new territory for Clark, for teenage Clark. He manages it awkwardly, and clumsily, and with not very much skill, but he manages it. That's the important thing. Now, I should pause here a little bit and talk about Whitney Fordman before I move on to the next episode. Whitney has his share of weaknesses in terms of characterization. If Smallville had been made and released in the 1950s or 60s, Whitney Fordman would probably be a more credible character. But these days, he's not. 
He's a senior in high school, and he's dating Lana. Lana's a freshman. Now, I realize that what I'm about to say may piss some people off. And I also realize that my experience is my experience, and so it's not necessarily representative of national trends. But in my experience, the only reason a male senior dates a female freshman is because he wants to fuck her. Or at least he's hoping to. He's older. He's more physically developed. Odds are he has a driver's license and a car. Odds are this is the first time a lot of freshman girls have been around something like that. And they're easily impressed. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I didn't indulge in this myself when I was a senior in high school. I don't know this from firsthand experience, but I do know it from firsthand observation. Seniors date freshmen because they want to get laid. Guys just like Whitney, tall, athletic, good-looking, and all that. They're the ones who go after freshmen. Most other people have more self-respect than that. Now, if you're listening to this and your freshman daughter is dating some senior dude, well, it's something you should be aware of. If they haven't knocked boots yet, they're probably going too soon. Now, are there exceptions to all this? Yeah, probably. I never saw one when I was in high school, but yeah, I guess there might be. But my point here in all this is to say that when people call Whitney Fordman the all-American anachronism, this is the kind of thing they mean. Anyway, so that's that stuff. But Hothead, the third episode, proves to Jonathan that Clark, in spite of everything else that he's seen up to this point, Clark isn't completely invincible. When Clark's trapped in the sauna with the kryptonite, Jonathan seems shocked that anything could bring Clark down. The idea of Clark somehow being vulnerable to the meteorocks was clearly a totally foreign idea to Jonathan. He still saved his son, but this was the first indication Jonathan Kent ever had that Clark has an Achilles heel. The weirdness isn't over yet, though. Not this season, not by a long shot. In X-Ray, the fourth episode, Clark develops the ability to see through basically anything. And it says something about Clark that it happens a couple of times before he even mentions it to his parents. And for their part... Jonathan and Martha pretty much take it in stride. It's a mark, I guess, of just how much weird shit they'd been dealing with lately that Clark developing the ability to see through solid fucking objects is starting to become just more of the same. Still, it's interesting that when Clark tells him he has x-ray vision, Jonathan and Martha immediately spring into action trying to help him find ways to control it. No more living in denial... No more burying themselves in farm work. They immediately start working to help him adjust. And for his part, Clark rolls with it too. Finding out that he couldn't be physically harmed in the pilot fucked Clark up real good for a couple of days. Floating above his bed in metamorphosis was enough to ruin his whole morning. By the time of X-Ray, though, Clark's starting to adapt to all the changes that he's going through. And speaking of X-Ray... Clark has a showdown with Tina Greer in the cemetery. He's definitely getting the hang of fighting supervillains because the only reason Tina ever had a tactical advantage over Clark is because of Lana's kryptonite necklace. Once Tina inadvertently gets rid of the necklace, the fight's 
pretty much over before it even really begins. Still, it's rather telling that Clark never intentionally uses his x-ray vision, shall we say, inappropriately. I mean, yeah, there's that glimpse into the girls' locker room at the beginning of the episode, but that was unintentional on his part. Clark never intentionally uses his power to violate anybody's privacy or modesty. And this doesn't come from the Kents, either. Or at least, it doesn't explicitly come from them. At no time do they ever smack Clark upside the head and tell him not to act like a skeezy little creep. They never have to. Clark knows he can't use his powers to take advantage of other people. And yet, he still doesn't close the loop on on that and see a disconnect there with playing football because in Cool, the fifth episode, he jokes about uh, dropping out of school and becoming a professional athlete. Anyway, Hourglass, the sixth episode, is probably worth a commentary all by itself, but this isn't a commentary. It's a retrospective. Clark tells Martha that Cassandra Carver has the ability to predict the future. Now, Martha scoffs at that, saying, nobody can tell the future, but uh, Mrs. Kent, that wouldn't be the strangest thing you've seen. Now, would it? Shit, that wouldn't be the strangest thing you've seen lately. Still, what everybody remembers about this episode is the vision of Lex's future. And the short version is, Cassandra sees Lex become the president and also kill pretty much everything he touches. The sky opens up and rains blood on him. Now, obviously there are connections there to the comics, and it's just, it's a, it's an, uh, an effective and chilling sequence. For Clark, he's surrounded by tombstones. The implication is that he'll outlive everybody he loves. And to me, two things here. First, Again, obvious connections there with the comics. Specifically, it reminded me of DC One Million, where Superman is said to have outlived his friends and his family, after which he just leaves. The other thing there is that it plays into one of Clark's main hang-ups that later seasons are going to develop. Namely, Clark is very attached to the life he has with his parents on the farm. And on some level... He knows how good he has it. His parents love him. They've never exploited him, and they've never used his powers for their own purposes. No. They've protected him. They've supported him. They've done everything they can to take care of him. To the best of their abilities. And it stands to reason that Clark doesn't want to even take the chance of losing that. It's completely understandable that the thought of losing everybody eventually freaks him the fuck out. Anyway, episode 7, Craving. Craving is unique in the sense that there's really nothing unique about it. That sounds weird, but hear me out. Each episode to this point has introduced some new element of the Superman mythos, or it's expanded the Smallville-specific mythos, or it's developed characters in key ways that are going to pay off at varying points either this season or in the rest of the show's run or or whatever. And I might mention that this is Dr. Stephen Hamilton's first appearance on the show, but his story plays out by the beginning of season two. Plus, 
Hiring Dr. Hamilton only serves to illustrate a little bit of Lex's free thinking and his willingness to consider and explore alternative solutions to life's mysteries. Now keep in mind, Lex is fundamentally a skeptic, but he's at least willing to consider possibilities. His mind doesn't gravitate there organically, but when evidence takes him in a certain direction, he will eventually wake up to that. And this is the beginning of him being willing to consider unusual explanations to strange happenings. Lex, and this, this is also brought to bear in, uh, in Craving, Lex is also perfectly willing to use devious methods to accomplish fairly benign, even altruistic goals. And as good as all that character development might be, none of it's really new. Researching the car crash on the bridge and blackballing Roger Nixon from the Inquisitor did all that stuff just as well. Now, don't get me wrong. None of this should be construed as me bashing on craving. When I said it's unique for not being unique, I simply meant that it doesn't really introduce anything new. This episode is spent playing in the world that's been built up uh, up to this point. You've got Lana's Aunt Nell playing her role as the micromanaging, overbearing, borderline stage mother. You got Lex cruising town looking for eccentric answers to the world's problems. Clark acting selflessly and heroically to help others. Pete Ross trying and failing to get laid and other stuff. This is day-to-day business in Smallville, and this is really our first chance as viewers to just catch our breath and appreciate the new mythos that Al Goff and Miles Miller are setting up. Smallville, as a TV show, is now in full swing, and this is one of those episodes where the viewer can just kind of kick back, relax, and enjoy the moment. So, to close out the first part of my Smallville Season 1 retrospective, in time, episodes like Craving would eventually be snidely referred to as filler by a bunch of pretentious fucking cocksmokers who don't seem to understand how to tell stories in an episodic format like television. But if you ask me, it's, it's worth mentioning that Al Goff and Miles Miller, they originally conceived Smallville as a show where Clark would take slow, gradual baby steps toward becoming Superman in an episodic format. And originally, they didn't conceive of multi-part stories. Everything was going to be a standalone episode. Season 1 progressed, though. They realized that they had to begin telling stories in a more serialized format with season-long story arcs. They began taking steps in that very direction during Season 1, but by the time they started making the effort, guys, really, the season was almost halfway over. Still, it wasn't a total loss. They were, el- they, they were able to develop some ideas over several episodes, and I don't want to get too specific about any of that stuff. I'll mention it when we get there, but suffice it to say, the latter half of Season 1 has a lot more going for it than it gets credit for most of the time. Now... To kind of explain all of this stuff and kind of maybe peel back the curtain of what was happening behind the scenes, there was no writing staff during this first season. Goff and Miller would basically break a story, write the rough draft of the script, pitch it to the network, revise it a little bit, and then they'd bring in freelancers to do all the revisions and make any changes that are necessary from that point on. Basically, Goff and Miller had other aspects of the production to oversee, and because of that, they tended to stick to sort of formulaic plots. A character either acquires or is shown to already possess superpowers. 
He goes on a rampage. Clark beats the shit out of him in the big climax, while throughout the episode, the supporting characters go through sort of mini-story arcs of their own, and then the show ends with a pop song playing in the background. Now, sticking to a formula worked well in terms of freeing Goff and Miller up to manage things like setting up a wardrobe department, finding directors to make each episode, refining the show's look, and all of that stuff with directors of photography and other things. But because of this, season one gets a lot of shit for being repetitious. And there is a sense in which several episodes are sort of variations on the pilot, but it helps to know what was happening behind the scenes. Goff and Miller had one hell of a workload to manage. You see, television is different from film. If you don't get one episode right... Eh, no big deal. Just try harder next time. Don't make the same mistake twice if possible. Shit like that. Season 1 has a few clunkers to it, but in the batch I've reviewed this time out, none of them are outright terrible, and most of them are lots of fun. So, sure, a lot of haters out there call all or most of Season 1 filler, but I prefer to think of it this way. When I just want to watch an episode or two of the show without having to memorize 90 gamillion fucking different plot lines, character arcs, and whatever else. Season 1, without a doubt, is the most accessible. Even the standalone episodes from other seasons still have occasional references to the broader season arc, or for that matter, even the entire series arc. Season 1... By and large, it's free of that stuff in a lot of ways. You can watch one episode without having to instantly recall zillions of tiny little details. Now, by way of comparison, I love this shit out of Smallville's sainted seventh season. I mean, to me, Smallville season seven was never this consistently awesome, whether it's in terms of characters, subplots, action sequences, cinematic stuff like color design and cinematography, all that, and whatever else. The other seasons have a lot going for them. Don't get me wrong. But as far as just all-out fucking consistency goes, I put The Sainted Season 7 ahead of everything, including The Mighty Season 3. But for all the strengths that The Sainted Season 7 has, it's just not as accessible as the first season. So, anyway... All right, so uh, that's enough of that for now. I'm going to get more into Season 1 next time. But for right now, I'll be right back after these messages. Introducing the We're Alive Fancast, a fancast dedicated to a story of survival. Hey, this is Mick. This is Redbeard. We would like to introduce our new fancast, in which we will be covering season four of the zombie podcast audio drama known as We're Alive. Join us as we review each episode as it comes out, leading into the conclusion of this great zombie story. We can be found at mickred.com. That's M-I-C-K-R-E-D dot com. Or by searching for We're Alive Fancasts on iTunes and Facebook. 
If you like strange pop culture, if you like obscure stuff that you wish you'd have heard of years ago and you don't know what it is, if you like just that kind of stuff, old radio, um, obscure, unmarketable pop culture, uh, strange chiptune music, um, all sorts of things like that can be found on the Quake Reversal Satellite on Overnightscape Underground at O-N-S-U-G dot com. It's an amazing show at an amazing place full of uh, strange and unmarketable internet transmissions. Hours and hours and days and just O-N-S-U-G dot com. Take a look around and I bet you you'll find something. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I've put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S-M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. 
The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy.